Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Brooke Patterson and Dr. Ben Mentorplay about how we can make football safer for women. Brooke is a physiotherapist who is currently completing her PhD at the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Center, investigating the impact of ACL injuries on the lives of young adults. Brooke played several seasons in the Australian Football League National Women's Competition and has recently transitioned to becoming a coach. Ben has a background in sport and exercise science and completed his PhD in 2017. Ben is currently a lecturer and a research fellow at Latrobe with a strong interest in biomechanics. Brooke and Ben, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. No worries. Over the last few years, we have witnessed a huge increase of women playing male-dominated sports. But unfortunately, with increased participation comes increased injury. Women are anywhere between two to five times more likely to rupture their ACLs in any sport when compared to men. But in the Australian Football League women's competition that was introduced in 2017, the numbers are even greater. We have found out that women are over nine times more likely than men to sustain an ACL injury playing football. Brooke, what's going on? Thanks, Daniel. And I mean, for any athlete, there are obviously a number of internal and external factors and events that may exist or occur and interact that lead to a serious knee injury. And I mean, internal are things like age and sex and um, biological things like hormones, uh, biomechanical, physical and skill characteristics and external is things like environmental factors such as equipment or, or ground surface. Um, and then there's the actual event of the injury and the injury mechanism. And I guess there's varying levels of evidence for these, but the evidence um, will strongly tell us that uh, sex is um, a risk factor with females being, as you mentioned, at a greater risk. And then the only other things that we can really be confident about the risk factors is um, a family history of knee injury or previous ACL injury. Um, and our highest risk age group is age 14 to 18 for the girls and a um, little bit older for the men around 20 to 25 age who, who obviously are playing those high-risk cutting and pivoting sports like football. And I think the anatomical factors that have been defined in the literature that predispose females to ACL injuries are um, increased tibial slope and a decreased intercondyl femoral notch size. So there's obviously some, some anatomical things there that make women more at risk, but there's obviously a whole lot of other things um, playing a part as well. And um, I think the other thing that we can be really sure of is how ACL injuries occur in football. And in female and male football, they are quite similar. And there was a review in BJSM recently describing those kinetics and kinematics that we see occur at the knee, the hip, the trunk and the foot during the injury mechanism. And they're often during that jumping and landing, the deceleration and change in direction maneuvers on the field. And I guess um, the work of Rollbar really encourages clinicians to consider those sport-specific mechanisms and, and cater the injury prevention strategies towards them. Um, so for clinicians, whether you're working with a soccer team or a netball team or Australian football team, having a look at the literature and understanding, okay, for my sport, is it pressing up for a tackle or is it going up for a mark? So um, they're the key things, I think, and... Um, 
all the other factors, so your hormones, your biomechanics, your physical characteristics such as strength, fatigue, skill, training age, all these things get thrown around. But we really have some conflicting and limited evidence in that space and they make up, I guess, a big part of a complex puzzle of of what um, makes someone do their ACL and I guess what it what I want to leave clinicians with this point is that um, I think it's for them important for them to consider that if they've got a team or athlete in front of them, what do all these risk factors actually mean? Um, and the key point is, is it going to change your management plan with that team or with that athlete? And the overarching philosophy is that everyone should receive the injury prevention program regardless of what risk factors they may have because we know predicting injury is hard and even say um, you might have a player that displays every single classic combination of risk factors. They've got a family history. They've had a previous injury. They're a young female athlete. That doesn't mean that the teammate that doesn't have any of those factors isn't going to tear their ACL. So I think that's really important to consider. Um, and if you're working with a team, it's likely that each athlete has a different combination of risk factors at any given time. So therefore, the ability to individualise injury prevention programs becomes really difficult. But I'm not discounting individualising programs. And if you are working individually with an athlete and you have the ability to address specific, whether it's hormonal, biomechanical or physical factors, then there definitely isn't any harm in doing so. But I think we need to do that with the aim of improving their performance or developing rapport um, and knowing that it's not necessarily going to eliminate their, their risk of injury. Brooke, we know about ACL injuries in women, but what other differences exist in injury profile between women and men? Well, yeah, great question. I think in terms of the types of injuries that happen in men and women, there are some differences. Apart from ACLs, um, women also appear to have a higher risk of concussion in our football codes. Um, and men have a greater risk of hamstring, hip and groin pain. There's similar risk or conflicting evidence for ankle sprains, maybe leaning a little bit towards females are higher risk. Um, and in Australian football, we also seem there seems to be a greater risk of finger, thumb and hand injuries. Um, and that's supported by some of the preliminary injury surveillance work by Carolyn Finch. Um, and this may be skill related, I think. Um, a lot of coaches will tell us that yeah, there's lots of finger dislocations and sprains um, and it might be due to, say, that the kick's not um, spinning correctly um, so they're getting these awkward um, kicks and having to try and mark those balls um, or they may not have the correct marking technique combined with women we know have an increased ligament laxity as well. So I think the message to clinicians here would be to important to keep an eye on the injury profile specific to your sport and team. And it may be different even from league to league or state to state. Um, and if the time and resources are limited, then you can then cater your strategies towards those types of injuries. And then I guess apart from we've been talking a lot about physical differences, I think a big factor we need to consider between men and women now at the moment is the social, cultural and environmental factors. Um, and these are detailed nicely in a recent editorial by Aaron Fox in the BMJ. Just to, to give an example of what we mean by social, cultural and environmental factors, um, girls we know typically don't participate in much as physically demanding sports or activities as they grow up. Um, and I think this means that they don't develop the same physical capacities or sports-specific skills as boys um, 
an example that just came to uh, mind when I was a few weeks ago walking in the park and I saw a young boy kind of trying to jump off something really high onto like a round spent object and I just kind of stopped and watched because I was like this guy's gonna axe himself and fall off and he just like landed perfectly and it's just like kind of made me think well you don't really see girls doing that as much and certainly we're seeing more girls kicking the ball around um, in the park for sure and that's great Um, but I just don't think culturally and socially um, we're there quite yet with that development of physical skills Um, and this is especially true in AFLW here with no opportunity to play football at all in the teenage years until recent years. And then the other point, I guess, in relation to this um, cultural environmental factors is that for a lot of uh, female football professional sport around the world um, is that we have a lot shorter seasons in AFLW, shorter contracts. Uh, we even have shorter quarters. And I think this creates a pressure, a fast-paced game, a finals-like intensity. And um, I guess in one sense, an example is that with the short contracts, then if a player is injured – They've only got one year to get back and um, prove that they deserve another contract. And so this often creates an accelerated return to sport. Ben could probably provide some great insight on the physical preparation side of things. Yes, certainly. I think, you know, like we said, there's, there's so many factors. Is it anatomical, hormonal, um, biomechanical? What What is it? Is it maybe that relative inexperience um, or training age of, of women to playing football as a whole, as Brooke just touched on. Um, and I think we all agree that rapid rise in participation uh, of women's um, football or women playing football, uh, and that's across all levels and across all codes, it's obviously a great thing. Um, but as Brooke touched on, we do need to acknowledge that women haven't had the same opportunities as men for a long time. Um, and we're, we're seeing women participate in football at all levels, um, which I mentioned was great, but there's a lot of public interest and a lot of uh, administrators and the media wanting to see the game, uh, whichever code it may be, played at a fast and exciting pace. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the men's game is played at that fast and exciting pace, but the men have had, you know, 150 years or so to get to that level. And, and as Brooke touched on as well, men have had those opportunities since they were quite young. So they've had that our pathway to produce the elite athletes that we see whereas in women's football we've obviously been seeing a lot of players come in from other sports so they're potentially not used to those specific physical demands of of uh, of their football um, be it soccer Australian rules football or, or other um, and I think as Brooke touched on that that editorial by Aaron Fox um, in the BMJ highlighted this really well about looking at sports where men and women have had similar exposure and, and similar opportunities since an early age Um, and one example of a a sport in this regard would be dancing where research shows that you know male and female dancers who have had similar exposure similar opportunities in their younger years they perform tasks that are that are thought to reflect ACL mechanisms so those sort of landing and, and cutting type tasks with a similar level of performance between the men and women. Ben, many of our listeners are familiar with the 11 Plus, FIFA's injury prevention program, which has been specifically designed to prevent football injuries. Are injury prevention programs like this effective in women's football as well? Uh, yes, yes, they certainly are effective. Um, and our, our recent systematic review that was published in BJSM has shown this. Um, and there's a lot of research 
showing that these types of injury prevention programs, so you mentioned the, the FIFA 11 Plus and there's a bunch of others um, out there at the moment, um, the, the research has suggested that these programs can reduce ACL injuries uh, in women in the in the order of about 40 to 60%, um, and that's across various uh, sporting populations, so across age level, across um, football code and across the level of participation. And our systematic review was sort of no different in this regard um, where we showed a 45% reduction in women's soccer. Um, what we also showed that I think was quite interesting um, that I think will hopefully make people sort of sit up and take notice is that these programs, which I think it's fair to say on balance mostly target ACL injuries specifically, um, but we showed that these programs are also effective in re reducing overall injuries of so any any type of injuries by around 22 to 27%. And I think um, this is good information to have to take to coaches, to take to administrators, um, that these programs are not only good at reducing ACL injuries, which is obviously important because of the, the long-term impact of ACL injuries, um, but they're also um, effective in, at reducing overall injuries. And so I think we're definitely at that point now where we have a critical mass of, of information that says that these programs are effective. And I think the obvious challenge now that the people have, have been talking about for a while, but the, the challenge is to implement these programs and how do we implement these programs across levels and, and across codes. And I think that there's some good work done um, by our colleagues over in Europe, so Martin Hagland and, and then people um, here in Australia, Australia as well, so Carolyn Finch and Alex Donaldson, about how we can uh, implement these programs um, and bring implementation science into this, um, into this equation. Ben, in a few sentences, how do the successful ACL injury prevention programs work? It's a good question. I'll do my best uh, to keep it to a few sentences because it is quite a complex um, thing. And that's one thing that we're trying to do with our systematic review is to try to tease out um, what are the you know the common threads or, or what is the the you know the magic potion I suppose in, in how these programs work. So just quickly, there was, there was sort of two things that we did and, and tried to look at. One was um, to look at the training components included in each of these studies. So try to identify the commonalities between programs. And it was interesting to note that there was quite a mixed bag in terms of the actual components. So things like agility, balance, um, plyometric, or strength type exercises were all sort of included. So there wasn't too much there. I think that the most common component was that strengthening type work. Um, and then the second thing that we did um, was try to look at if there was a relationship between doing more training components uh, and did that reduce injury more. So I think, you know, this stemmed from that clinical viewpoint of if you've only got a set time with players, you know, how many exercises or how many types of exercises should we be doing? And what we showed um, that was that there was a potential relationship. And I say potential because we need to uh, maybe be a little bit cautious in, in this um, finding because of some of the limitations uh, in terms of the number of studies included in this analysis. But what we found was a potential relationship between including more training components uh, and a greater reduction in overall and knee injuries. So basically doing more means you uh, reduce injuries more. But this really needs to be weighed up against player time. Um, you know, doing more components mean a greater reduction in injuries, but it might decrease the buy-in from the coaches. So that might mean that the players aren't actually doing the programs or doing them properly. So I think it's, yeah, it's really a balancing act in terms of that sort of magic potion or the magic number of exercises to include in these programs. 
Brooke, you've played Australian rules football at the elite level. What do you say now to people who tell you that women should not be playing football at all? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd always put my playing or coaching hat on and then sometimes I'm wearing my researcher hat and being a researcher in the ACL field and I always find this tricky because we're often a lot of the time, I guess, talking about injuries and the risk and even though it's in light of how we can improve outcomes for athletes, um, we tend to forget about the benefits and I think like anything we do, it's about weighing up the risks versus the benefits and for women playing football, there are, there are huge benefits and you only have to, like just to, to name a few, um, you only have to look at the smiles on the faces of these young girls when they, they come off the field from a game or they get a picture with their favourite player, having a kick with their dad to see the wide widespread benefits it has. So that would be the first point and I guess in Australia there's since the start of the AFLW competition there's been a huge increase in grassroots participation and these girls will grow up having these clubs as their second family almost and perhaps even moving into coaching or leadership roles in the sports industry which we know we need more of and young men will grow up where there's strong physical women playing football and that's the norm and it's not just mum's role to clean up the canteen on a Saturday so the I guess they're really societal benefits and what I would say in terms of like I guess the injury risk that a lot of parents will will ask clubs or coaches will say, well, well, should they be playing? And really it comes back to those benefits outweighing the consequences or the risk of injury. And um, even if you talk to a player that has suffered an injury or multiple injuries, they'll always find a positive out of the experience and they wouldn't change a thing about their decision to play or return to play and I think it's just when those risks and consequences start to outweigh the enjoyment or the reward that the player gets and they are difficult conversations that do need to be had with athletes and we see we're seeing a little bit of that happen in the concussion space with early retirements in the AFL men's here and I'm I'm sure that it might become um, a conversation that needs to be had with certain female football players as well but for the most part the the benefits are always going to outweigh the risks and what I say to uh, coaches and, and clubs um, is that you can reassure your parents and your players that they are implementing evidence-based practices um, what we've been talking about today to, to reduce that risk so as a clinician out there they're the things that you can obviously help with um, help clubs implement those practices and that is only going to encourage more parents to, to sign their girls up for these sports which have great benefit yeah and I guess in terms of the crit critiques I guess of women's football like they shouldn't be playing they're at increased risk of injury it's not good to watch Um, it doesn't make any money Um, I guess you can see how far professional football has come and has the potential to go when you hear about say the US women's soccer team and how they're contributing to the revenues over there so there's a lot of promise and I think it's just brave leadership and and backing these women in to to get to that level um, over time and regardless I would say to those people that say that they're not meant to be playing football is that it's about equal opportunity to kind of play at any level or do the same things that boys and men are able to do in any aspect of life and explain some of those widespread benefits. Brooke, how can our listeners, the sport and exercise medicine community, play their part to make women's football safer? What are your key takeaways? 
key takeaways. Thanks, Daniel. I guess there's three main points that I wanted to get across. And firstly, uh, in a sporting context, it's about implementing those strategies based on the best available evidence in the, the context of your sport. So these are our neuromuscular training programs. They should be progressive. They should include all the components that Ben spoke about. Exposure to these things is key. We know that there's a dose response effect, so doing it more can reduce injuries more. So two to three times a week for 10 to 15 minutes is what the literature will tell us. We also need to make the program sport specific and link it to that injury profile that I spoke about in your sport and get the plate coaches, the players, the medical and the high performance staff on the same page. Um, and that's going to help with buy-in. So getting your coaches to coach the same footwork and landing things that you are in your injury prevention warm up um, and not so much for talking about injury prevention but for their performance on the field and injury reduction is a bonus. Uh, educating the coaches around expected injury rates, uh, what are the controllable risk factors that may contribute to their players getting injured and that's going to I guess help with any frustration of players getting injured, blaming, rushing them back to return to play or say at a community level um, having co all the coaches on the same page in regard to this is the expected training structure. You do 10 to 15 minutes of your warm-up. Um, we do strengthening at the end um, so that when – and the, using the same terminology around that and exercises so that when players and coaches move between age groups or there's turnover, um, it's more seamless. So I guess that's in that sporting context um, and the physical things that we can do. But as we've touched on, it's not just about those physical factors. Um, we need to start addressing those social, cultural, environmental factors. And firstly, I think how we can do that is just providing opportunities and encouraging girls to participate and develop those fundamental physical attributes and skills as they grow up. And that's something that we can all contribute to as a society, as clinicians, as parents, teachers and coaches. And understanding, I guess, what these factors are in your context, at an elite level, we know that it relates to equal pay, not just for players, but staff so that they can support the players in the off-season. It's also about the language that we use to patients and athletes one-on-one, -on -one, but also in the media and talking about those benefits of participation uh, in the research world, we need to actually also get a better understanding of the female athlete and their health and performance to to better guide our strategies. Um, and then, yeah, part of what we're doing at La Trobe is um, trying to understand this, but just a shameless plug for a project we're doing at the moment is we need as many women and girls playing community Australian football in 2020, so non-Victorian based, of course, to um, fill out a survey about their training and um, injuries. So keep an eye out for that. And lastly, last point is that sports medicine professionals, we do have a huge role to play in injury prevention implementation and making football safer for women and in turn developing them as athletes and developing the, the female game. So I guess considering approaching community clubs or leagues or organisations to run education and practical workshops um, and this obviously has mutual benefits. So for the benefits for the club and encouraging players to come down because they know that they're doing all the right things. But for a physio or a physio practice, then you're connecting with your community. You obviously then, um, when the players um, may suffer an injury, they go, they're most likely going to come and see you. So um, that's how I see that um, working. And then I guess it's just creating that culture and female football is a different culture to men's football and they're really actually open to learning and sharing ideas and creating those networks and the coaches and clubs are really calling out for it. So get out there and um, 
do some workshops and some education because, yeah, they really want that network. And I think we're lucky in the sports medicine world, we have this online community of information sharing like BJSM and that's what we need to start to create um, in our sporting community as well. Ben, if our listeners would like to learn more about ACL prevention programs or about La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, where should they go? There'd be a few resources. There's definitely our, our recently published systematic review in BJSM, which is open access. So uh, that would be a good resource to, I suppose, learn about the, the research in uh, injury prevention programs in women's football specifically. Uh, there's also, as you mentioned, the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre do a lot of work in this regard and their blog. Um, I'd encourage people to have a look at that. And um, as Brooke touched on, there's going to be a lot more uh, research coming out from Latrobe, so I definitely uh, encourage people to keep an eye on our, our Twitter uh, um, and, and Facebook pages and also that blog. Um, and, and from a personal perspective, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the work coming out of Latrobe um, around women's Australian football. Brooke and Ben, thank you both very much for your time today. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to this BGSM podcast with Brooke Patterson and Dr. Ben Mentor-Play. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect through our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BGSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BGSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.